Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with criminologist Tanya Trussler. Tanya is a sociologist. She teaches at Mount Royal University in Alberta, here in Canada. She's studied all sorts of violent crime from sex offenders. She actually spent a whole bunch of her master's degree actually in Kingston, Ontario at the penitentiary and talking and having lots of interviews with sex offenders and figuring out uh, what was going on with that. And then I guess at a certain point that wasn't dark enough. And so then she moved into studying murder. And so she's uh, an, an expert on violent crime in Canada and specifically kind of rates and understanding why things change and what are the variables. So it's an interesting conversation. So I uh, look forward to that. Um, okay, but before we get to that conversation, uh, we word from our sponsors, as they say. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsors. Uh, first one is Seb Furtado Photography. Uh, Sebastian Furtado is a professional photographer who offers online courses for all levels. And he can no matter where you are, he can move you very quickly towards taking better pictures and he'll teach you how to take very good pictures, how to um, develop them afterwards in different software programs so that they look fantastic. I've seen people sort of extend their skill level rapidly working with him. If you're interested in photography, definitely um, check that out. Today's episode is also brought to you by Good Mix Foods. Uh, Good Mix is a naturopath, sort of formulated uh, custom superfood. It's a mixture of seeds and nuts. It's um, very sort of low-carb, paleo. Uh, it's good for anybody. I mean, I, I have it every breakfast. Um, but it's especially good if you have any kind of um, digestive problems like irritable bowel syndrome or things like that. It promotes... Um, gut health, as they say. It's uh, very, very good for your your digestion. If you use the discount code LIKEVILLE15, you can get a 15% discount on your order. Today's episode is also brought to you by Elsa's Bar. Elsa's, if you live in Montreal, you probably know about it. It's my favorite bar in the city. It's We actually bought our place in part because it was close to Elsa's. It's in the middle of the Plateau neighborhood, sort of like the, the hipster neighborhood in town. Uh, it's on Roy Street. They have a wonderful atmosphere, really good food, uh, just an all-around fantastic place. Uh, check it out if you're in Montreal or you're going to be visiting Montreal. Today's episode is also brought to you by Café Lalie, uh, Galerie des Artistes, Galerie d'Art. This is a family-owned fine art gallery slash café in St. Henry, which is a neighborhood, up-and-coming neighborhood in the city, right by Atwater Market, right by the Lachine Canal. has great food, fantastic art, really interesting place. It's a mother-daughter business, right? The mother runs the art gallery and the daughter runs the cafe. So check it out if you're in St. Henry. Uh, today's episode is also brought to you by our Patreon uh, supporters. If you're not a Patreon supporter, you should be. We need your money. Uh, go to www.patreon.com slash Likeville podcast. You can also support us by leaving a review, a positive review, of course, on iTunes. Um, you can uh, also join our Facebook group. Just put in Likeville. You'll find us. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the Likeville Pod, right, and we will keep you apprised of various developments, right, you know, future guests. You can ask questions, things like that. Um, and also, for people that become Patreon supporters, there are various things like video versions of our interviews, extra bits of interviews that were not put uh, on the regular, on the sort of limited time extra parts that will be there. So uh, join up. All right. So without further ado, I give you my interview with Tanya Tressler. 
Welcome to the Legfield Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, today we're going to be talking with criminologist Tanya Tressler. So, uh, Tanya, tell us, uh, our listeners, a little bit about yourself and what you study. I mean, it's pretty, pretty dark stuff. <laughs> like yes, it's a bit dark. Um, I am a professor at uh, Mount Royal University in criminal justice, and I study um, a range of uh, topics, but uh, my primary focus is on uh, violence, interpersonal violence, and policing interpersonal violence, or investigation of uh, interpersonal violence. Specific focus is on homicide, and I have a background in um, sexual violence as well. And then other areas that I've I continue to do work on our crime prevention and um, policing crime in rural areas. Okay. Yeah. One, I mean, there's a number of things I wanted to ask you about, but the first thing I wanted to ask you about, because I've been kind of fascinated by it recently, is the, the whole uh, movement in Australia and a number of other places where moving towards restorative justice models. Yeah. So what do you yeah. think about that? Well, restorative justice isn't um, a particular area of focus of mine, but we all in criminology know a bit about it. We do some of it uh, in rural areas um, and uh, First Nations communities. Uh, it's it, it has a, a role to play, I think, personally, and it is, um, you know, to, in, in essence, attempt to somewhat avoid the formal criminal justice system and uh, find ways to, or coupled with the uh, formal criminal justice system, find ways for people to move on after a crime has been committed. So bringing victims and offenders together, for example, um, for, for open discussion, or um, uh, sometimes it involves, you know, kind of a old school reintegrative shaming sort of thing. But um, I don't know how successful it's been everywhere, but I do know that it becomes more difficult in cities or more densely populated areas where community is not the same as it would be in, say, a rural area. Yeah. Well, I've heard a couple of, so, I mean, obviously I'm hearing like the best stories of it, but uh, <laughs> one example that I, I heard on the radio was where somebody robs your house, right? And this was in, I can't remember, I think it was in Sydney or Melbourne in Australia. But So somebody robs your house and they steal a bunch of stuff and then they sell it. And so, uh, but let's say they had a, a serious drug problem at the time, you know, but yeah. so they get caught and they completely fess up and say, yeah, you know, that was wrong and I shouldn't have done that. And I've since, you know, gone to kind of treatment and I'm like off of this stuff. And so rather than they give the victim of the crime a chance to sort of help decide what is going to be the punishment. And so they could say like, okay, well, if you want the person to do you know, jail time, that can happen. But then they can come and offer something else where they say, well, you know, I actually have like a job now and I can, you know, I like, let's say stole $3,000 worth of stuff from you. So I can, um, I can give you $300 per paycheck for the next 10 paychecks until I've paid back the debt. And maybe because like I, you know, fucked up your life and like I made you not feel safe in your house and you had to show it, maybe we'll like add like a thousand dollars to that in damages. And very often the person will say, well, I'd rather actually get my money back rather than put this person in prison where we're spending like, you know, 78 grand a year to support them in tax dollars, right? So very often, like, people will actually go for that. And that, that it, you know, obviously there's, there's cases where that's not going to work, but that does right. seem like a way better solution than just incarcerating huge swaths of your population, you know? Yeah, there's uh, obvious downfalls to uh, high levels of incarceration. Uh, I think that, um, like you just said, it can work, um, trying to find a way to integrate it into the existing justice system because it has a somewhat informal feel to it. Um, or maybe sometimes it's not just about um, the victim themselves, but about the fear in, um, 
in the in the community that they created by committing this crime, right? That might increase the fear of other neighbors for their, uh, you know, their property, etc. But um, it 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 does have a role. I think it could have a, a a greater role. I just see it doesn't necessarily fit with a, a justice system that's somewhat blind, right? Or not to say that it actually is, but um, the idea that um, our laws should be applied evenly, right? Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, sometimes we have this process in more violent crimes, say where we have uh, victim impact statements that are given that adds a layer of sort of uh, subjectivity to the um, sentencing process. Um, But all these things do worry me a little because um, sometimes you have victims that don't have people or say homicide victims, for example, that don't have people to stand up and give that statement. Mm-hmm. Um, does that make that victim any less worthy of, um, uh, of, 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 of seeing their offender go to jail for a longer period of time? You know, there's, so there's, there's definitely um, some problems there, complex problems um, where, you have to integrate a different system into a pre-existing one, one that's built on um, something different, right? They're both mm-hmm. they're both sort of focused on two different things. Um, you know, uh, the law being evenly applied is now no longer evenly applied. Yeah. Well, I right? yeah, I'm I'm very torn about it because I I definitely can see that, you know, especially when you have like racial issues or ethnic issues and that it can complicate things. So some people are getting a very empathetic sentence and they're taking, they're having a lot of sympathy on the, on the offender and saying, well, you know, it's the first time and, you know, let them off and things like that. Whereas other people don't get it. And so I, I get like the logic for mandatory minimums or, or having sentences be just like set. Right. I get that. But you know, the, what, the more I hear all of these, like, wonderful stories about how this restorative justice works it just it just seems much more like it it gets to what justice is supposed to be all about right rather than because if you think about justice in terms of its retribution right we're going to get like revenge against you right that doesn't seem to necessarily i mean okay to give you a, a concrete example uh there was I live next door to, <laughs> I better not give too many information here, but like I live next door to this couple when I first moved out. And I, I, at one point they, they were like completely in love and they were very, very sweet. And they had this little girl and they were amazing. And like, at one point I said, well, how did you guys meet? And they both started laughing hysterically. Right. And, uh, he, you know, he turns to her and he goes, do you want to tell them the story? And she goes, no, no, you tell them the story. And so he met her when she was on parole. <laughs> like, okay. And she was in jail for 10 years for killing her husband. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And she basically her husband, she lived like way up north. She's uh, Inuit and she lived way up north. And she like her husband was incredibly abusive, like very, very violent. Put her in the you know the hospital number of times, like in you know, all this stuff. And it was a very mean drunk it's a horrible bastard basically and uh he one time he came home and he was completely wasted started raging and stuff like that she took a shotgun and just like blew his head off right wow and she went um she went to jail she was like sentenced to 10 years for for doing that right well Mm -hmm. at exactly the same time like not not far not far off at all like there was a woman in westmount who also killed her husband but she's Mm. she was a white woman who had a lot of money and had access to really good legal um, representation and could basically get the sympathy and show reports that she also had been in this like really fucked up abusive relationship for a long time she also had been hospitalized a number of times and so she got off without any time at all right right and so i i get why um I, I get why the the idea that we should have justice being blind works, but at the same time, I kind of think the the outcome for the Westmount woman was the just one. Right. You know. Well, uh, I don't. What year was this, or do you know? Like, um, I'm not sure. I would say approximately 
my guess would be let me see i moved out when i was 19 i guess this would have been the late 80s okay yeah uh yeah so the actually um, mid mid 80s late 80s yeah yeah so the battered spousal uh defense um you know hasn't i mean just like anything in the criminal justice system nothing seems to be completely evenly applied so while i argue that you know, the justice system is supposed to be this one way. Of course, it's not. And, um, you know, discretionary measures and discretion, you know, all of that stuff exists. And we all know that and we know, um, you know, that um, race matters and uh, sex matters and all of these things matter whenever you're coming up uh, in front of uh, a judge or a jury or the police, right? Mm -hmm. Just to start with. So, it doesn't work perfectly either. It doesn't. I mean, and, and, and in fact, one would be hard pressed to find a system that is perfect or even close. Um, uh, the systems themselves, though, are, you know, written and, um, and, and therefore difficult to change. So every time we try to change something, um, it's a long, uh, difficult process. And um, I think that's where things like um, the uneven uh, application of a battered spouse defense as self-defense um, and the uneven application of restorative justice and all of these things uh, uh, cause a problem uh, that we can always, we'll always be able to find uh, injustices within the justice system. Mm -hmm. Well, right. another thing that seems to factor into all of this is that uh, when it comes to, when it comes to murder, I'm not sure if this is the same case all over Canada, but I know in the in the United States and many other parts of the world, this is very often the case that uh, a major reason why people commit murder is that if you have if you have communities that are ruled not by sort of uh, they don't really have the rule of law and it's not really a community that's based on dignity and guilt, it's based on honor and shame and on mm -hmm. respect. And in situations like that where you don't really have a Leviathan that is running everything and that can be relied upon to, you know, you call the police and they're not going to come for two hours if they come at all. Uh, in mm -hmm. places like that, your reputation is really, really important. And if, some, if somebody challenges your reputation and then you have to respond with extreme force or else it'll be just open season on you, right? And so, I mean, to what extent do the, the kind of the culture of... I don't want to say lawlessness because it's not lawless, but sort of subcultures like urban ghettos or rural areas where there's very little policing or, or uh, prison populations, like places where you don't really have the uh, the rule of law, right? And so you have to, there's a kind of a, a, a sort of a rudimentary, more, more primal situation that kicks in, right? Does that... Do you think that should be taken into account when you're deciding what sentencing should be or what laws? Uh, well, I think it would be difficult to do um, in that way. But um, if if we're arguing that there's differences across the world, then, it, 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 you know, obviously that's true. Um, but it um, if you're arguing for with inside one country and having different cultures, that's... Um, that's definitely been argued before. In fact, uh, the first time was, I think, the late 1800s, uh, North v. South or something like that, uh, <clears throat> was demonstrating that the south, southern parts of the United States uh, were more violent because they had a culture of uh, vigilante justice mm -hmm. um, and and that that was that was part of who they were. And that was the reason. I mean, this was a. Um, late 1800s. So it was a quite a simple, straightforward argument for probably a much more complex phenomenon. But um, to say that, uh, um, that the South was more violent wasn't untrue. Um, and then later, as time progressed, that seemed to move more West in the United States. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, at first, just, just looking at uh, North and South, and then splitting the country into sort of three parts saying that the West became more violent than everywhere else because of, you know, sort of that Wild West idea or a lack of uh, rule of law. And um, all of those things, all of the uh, 
the crime rates that they were reporting were absolutely true. There was there were large disparities, and there continued to be, um, you know, there continues to be an uneven geographic geographical distribution of homicide across most countries. Um, whether it's just that, right? Whether you could argue that it's just one thing, um, I don't. I think you'd come up come up against a few problems in in that case, right? Yeah. That um, that 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 it's never just one thing. Um, while it might be a contributing factor, it's unlikely that it stands all by itself. Yeah, I mean that's that's what sort of mystifies me because I mean I was talking to a friend of mine who's studied murder in the uh, in the United States and in before the United States in the American colonies and looked at uh, all the numbers and he said it's just so weird. Like you, for instance, if you look at um, different waves of immigration, right? You can have yeah. big waves of immigration to an area from. Uh, let's say from like Eastern Europe. And so you get lots of like Russians and Slavs and Jews into an area and it has like practically no effect whatsoever on the, the murder rates, right? There's like practically no change. And then you get some, and then if you get in the 19th century is the biggest kind of most uh, extreme example. You would have these new England towns that were, uh, you know, pretty good sized town that they had not had a murder in you know seven eight years like they had like yeah. absolutely no murders like they just like they had very little violent crime and they would get uh, an influx of irish immigration and mm. their murder rate would like go through the roof like really everywhere the irish went in the 19th <laughs> century in the um in the united states you immediately see like a huge huge spike in uh, in violent crime and murder and stuff like that like places that hadn't had a murder in 10 years would suddenly have you know 70 right in one year and so he sort of said you know i'm looking at these numbers and i can kind of you know as an irish person <laughs> he goes like yeah i i'm, I'm like, like i i i sort of he goes i i'm kind of like uh, it makes me understand now a little bit more why there was so much anti-Irish sentiment. Like they weren't just pulling this out of their asses. It wasn't just like kind of making this up in some sort of racist fantasy, right? Like there was actually something going on. So I guess one of those questions that I'm, I'm kind of amazed by is why do you think it, why do you think some particular subcultures are really violent and others aren't? I mean, is it or it's a, is it just straight up class? Is it is it you know, what's going on? Like, well, again, I think it's not never just one thing. I mean, when you go from homogeneity to heterogeneity, that always causes a problem. You know, social disorganization and lack of shared co values; those kinds of things always cause a problem for society. Whether it comes out in increased homicides or just um, you know uh, just basically things kind of in chaos, um, that is well documented. I don't. That's I'm surprising. Not, um, That's surprising. I, what wow. moving from well i would imagine because the so, most violent c communities right now in canada are, are remarkably homogeneous well i i mean i want to um so cautionary notes that i'll add here is that I, I study homicide by rates right like homicide rates are calculated in a specific way um and they're standardized by a hundred thousand as soon as you start applying the rate calculation to rural areas regardless of what you're looking at um you're going to find um that they're quite volatile and that sometimes you'll see rapid increases because it doesn't take much. Like it could be one homicide that mm -hmm. could, uh, could push the rate up substantially. Whereas you don't see that happening in large dense areas. So one homicide does not have a large impact on the rate due primarily or solely to the size of the population. Um, and so when we talk about rural areas in the prairies, which, you know, are currently experiencing uh, increases in violence, say, um, it's just uh, when we use rates as the only way to measure how violent a society is, we use homicide rates, and they're it's standard practice. I, I, um, it's something that everybody uses, but it is um, inappropriate to only use the rate or only talk about the rate when you're talking about uh, rural Saskatchewan or rural Alberta or wherever, uh, because of that um, uh, impact that one homicide could have on a rate when you have a population of 10,000 or something. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, um, the issues in rural areas, we have... Um, 
um, a very small populations in our rural areas. And we have very small proportion of our population in rural areas. Um, and so uh, we're looking at, you know, in some cases, hundreds of people in a town rather than um, tens of thousands of people in a small city. And that could go for miles in a place like, um, you know, in a, in a province like Alberta, where you don't have any cities for miles uh, and any place that is larger than 10,000 people. Uh, so those uh, changes, I mean, that's not to diminish their importance because, uh, you know, they have had problems recently uh, in Alberta. We have a dedicated um, fund coming from the RCMP to, to look into rural crime, right? Because it's, it, it's jumped that much. So I think it's important, but to state that, um, they're in complete chaos uh, would be an overstatement because it could be that you had two homicides last year and four this year and yeah. your rate is huge, right? That yeah. that's, that's the biggest problem with the rate stuff. Um, and, and there, <laughs> there's lots of caution to, to written in most of the research about using rates in small areas. Yeah. Right. No, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I, but you know, even then, if you look at some large, I remember when the mosque massacre happened in Quebec city a couple of years ago, uh, yeah. I, you know, we were just completely freaked out about it here in Quebec. And, uh, I had a couple of my American relatives and friends. They said, you know, what's the big deal? It was like, what? Seven people were killed. Like, come on. That's like. That's a Monday. Like, you know, like, right. They were yeah. just like, why are you guys freaking out over like such a small thing? And it was interesting because I went and looked at I I found a number of cities. I, I came up with a list. I showed it to one of my classes. I found a list of 40 American cities that are um, comparable in size. They're about approximately the same size as Quebec City population wise. And then mm -hmm. I showed like what the murder, how many, no, not the rate, like the absolute number of murders. It yeah. was unbelievable. Like in places yeah. like Kansas City, they had, you know, like, like seven, 700 murders like in the previous year. And mm -hmm. the thing is, is I said, you do realize Quebec City, we don't need to talk about the rate. There were a number of years before the mosque massacre where the total number of murders in Quebec City was zero. Yeah. For an entire yeah. year. Right. So uh, it's it, clearly, you know, they're doing something right when it comes to keeping violent crime down. But uh, yeah. And that it, I guess it really colors your per your perception. Like when Annalise and I were living in Baltimore, they were dumping bodies in the park right by our house all the time. Yeah. Right? And you would see like police tape out and they were taking and you just get kind of numb to it. And it becomes right. like something that you're you're used to. Right. But. I think I think we do a lot of comparing between Canada and the U.S. when it comes to homicide rates, and um, <clears throat> I don't know. The U.S. is an anomaly, you know. They they don't really fit into any. Um, they, they're not comparable to any country uh, in any other developed country when it comes to a whole bunch of things, not just homicide. And so it, it we do the comparisons from Canada to the U.S. and we're always saying the same, you know. Thing that the, the there's this huge gap between the two in terms of homicide but there are so many differences that um, you know the best comparisons would be from state to state say you mm -hmm. know or city to city in the US because I just I think uh, especially when it comes to stats I think that the numbers just won't um, you know, all we'll get to say is, oh, look, we're so much less violent, right? <laughs> like, look at us. I did yeah. a presentation once with an American colleague, um, and he was presenting, and it was, we were using uh, data from Canada and the U.S., and he stood up and said, the problem with Canada is you just don't kill each other enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. You know, well, to do homicide research, right? Of yeah. course. But it was, it was, um, that's kind of what happens at the end of every, you know, th there are some comparable places and you'll find some places in the U.S. W where the homicide rate's exceptionally low. And I imagine that there are reasons for that, but I don't think uh, comparing them to Canada really makes sense. I think comparing them to other parts of the U.S. would make most sense. Yeah, you know, I, I still do it all the time when I teach. I talk about the, the major differences between Canada and the U.S., but I usually talk about it more than just the violence, right? Like, what else is different? Why? Why would they be so different? Um, you know, of course, there's a few things that everybody kind of hits on, like 
firearms and those kinds of things. But there's other differences too, right? The yeah. U.S. is anomalous in so many ways, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, the I mean, I think it's Steven Pinker in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. He, he actually talks about violence in the United States. And um, he says that, first of all, you have to realize that the United States is is better thought of as as sort of i think he says like two or three different um zones like going right. from south to north and he, and he said if you actually look at the the north like the band of states that are along the canadian border that a lot of them have basically you know very very comparable violent crime rates to canada so they yes, don't like places like you know vermont and north dakota and things like that like they don't have like a great deal of violent crime in those places, even though they have tons of guns, right? They don't actually have very much crime at all, right? So he, he says you have to sort of think about uh, those things also. But there's another claim that he makes, which I want to ask you about. It, it's that he says that if you, historically speaking, that uh, we have never, murder has never been less prevalent than it is now. And that um, the if you go into... If you go to sort of more, you know, I guess like primitive societies like that are not like developed and civilized in those societies, almost always you see extremely high rates of murder. Right. Do you think that's true? Yes. Well, it is. The, I mean, the, basically the argument, I think, is uh, uh, um, a researcher named Gurr who made it in like the 70s or 80s, maybe. Um, there's been a long decline uh, since the 17th century and maybe even before that. But I mean our data are limited, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then the argument sort of links with another, um, well, uh, another writer, uh, Elias, who said that, you know, um, it's the civilizing process, mm -hmm. right? You have this uh, long, long civilizing process whereby, um, you know, state, um, the nation state develops, you take more control, the state has a monopoly on force or violence, and you have less uh, vigilanteism as a result. And that's a that's a solid argument that's been made for decades now. Uh, but other people have noted is what I think you're saying is that they call it the elite convergence. That is that um, developed societies are heading in that direction. But societies that are or countries that are more in chaos or have um, uh, still ha still exist, they un um, um, still lack the uh, sort of state control, um, they will continue to remain uh, ha with these high homicide rates. And that seems to be true of yeah. many of these places. So the, and, and then, you know, you see this pop up of uh, increase in violence in the um, Old Eastern Bloc after uh, the wall comes down. And that um, is largely argued due to sort of a, um, you know, a, a chaos, like if you're changing the entire society, you're going to have a state of anomie, so, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, and that's uh, going to cause increases in crime rates. So, you know, they're all sort of built around the same concept that um, that civilizing process or lack thereof. Yeah. Well, I think Steven Pinker's argument is way more uh, sort of obvious, right? He doesn't really rely on the, the the culture thing too much. He just says, basically, if you have a, a, a Leviathan, a reliable state that can um, that sort of can legitimately claim to have a monopoly on the use of force, then mm -hmm. that that state will automatically, even if it's an incredibly corrupt and fucked up state, even if it's like, you know, the communist Soviet Union, even whatever, if they can legitimately claim to have a monopoly on the use of force, that will drastically decrease the amount of uh, violence that you have. And I, you know, I, I just think, like from when I was a kid growing up in Verdun, definitely the a lot of the violence that happened happened because of the black market economies like whether it be like drugs or cigarettes or something like that like yeah. there was this underground economy and so if you're dealing if you're a coke dealer living on the avenues let's say and like you are trying to uh, somebody's trying to break into your house you can't call 911 and get the cops to come in like you have to be able to defend right. yourself uh, yeah. which which of course means you need to be armed which means there's an increased likelihood of of violent 
violence happening right there. And then on top mm-hmm. of that, if you get if your thing gets robbed, you can't like file an insurance report. Like if the electronics store around the corner from my house uh, gets robbed, as they did, they can file an insurance report and like get get their money back. Whereas um, if you mm-hmm. are participating in a, the illicit economy, then right. you have to get satisfaction or get reimbursed another way right you right so you usually go to some sort of criminal organization and say like well can you guys make this right you know so it it seems like a lot of this stuff happens just because of the i mean i mean i guess that's sort of a question i want to make sure to ask you so why do people in general big general statement here Mm -hmm. why do people kill each other in canada like who does it and why do they do it in general well um you know, uh, most of my work's been on changing, like things that change over time in Canada. But, um, you know, it's uh, uh, still a lot of, of family violence, right? So the most, you know, the more likely family or acquaintance violence, um, usually not first degree murder, so usually not necessarily premeditated. Um, we're not talking about a large number, like we get, a, you know, we're looking at 700 homicides per year, give or take. Um, which, you know, sounds like a lot, but it's not in comparison to no, uh, I mean, other places. Kansas right? City had more than that last year. It's just one city. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, when I first got the data set that I used for my um, dissertation, which was on homicide from the 70s through to um, the mid, uh, like 2007, 2008, um, I had the same amount of homicides in that data set as had existed in a year in the United States. Wow. Like it was, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, we are, you know, like a 10th of the population. So you have to take all of those things into consideration to to do the math, but it's just, it's just unbelievable to see. Uh, But why do people kill? Well, I mean, this is the question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just, uh, you'd be better with, better with somebody who works in psychology to to find that answer. But in terms of who's doing the killing, Mm -hmm. uh, yes, it's definitely, um, we've seen some changes. So for example, spousal homicide has been on the decline for, for years as a proportion of the whole. And (laughs) probably um, because you can get divorced more easily. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what it, well, that's exactly what it's attributed to. So So first you have divorce accessible, then it becomes um, more acceptable to divorce. So you needed both of those things kind of to happen for the decline. Um, And so family violence has, um, uh, as a a proportion of the whole, has been on the decline. What we have seen changes, uh, increases as a proportion, uh, gang violence, but we haven't been exceptional at keeping track of all of those statistics. So we didn't record gang um, related homicides in this country until the early 90s. So that makes it difficult to make comparisons. And then um, uh, unknowns. So um, people who don't know each other, uh, that has been uh, an increase. But it's it's a it's a tricky statistic because it's sort of um, gets conflated with uh, um, clearance. So uh, one of my other areas of research is homicide clearance. So how often we solve homicides and the changing in our ability to solve homicides. So um, how often do we solve them actually? Well, so we used to solve them at almost like say 95%. Like, and now that's been slowly declining. I mean, in, in some of the U S state, in some of the States in the U S they're, their clearance rates are uh, ridiculously low. So because in terms of all crime combined, homicide has the highest clearance. It is always the one that receives the most attention and and there's always uh, dedicated individuals who look at homicide or major crimes perhaps, but homicide being one of those. And um, uh, it's dropped to, it depends on what part, it's not evenly distributed, but it's dropped to closer to 80% um, over the last uh, 30 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I remember hearing, I think it was from Giovanni years ago. He, he said that, um, that, that the clearance rates were so high that basically you, you don't get away with murder. That, that is definitely true. And would have, I mean, the, the decline um, has been going on for like 30 years. So it's, it, it was above 90, maybe around 95. 
and then now we're we're dipping into about 80 or 80 percent or lower and then you have to go from region to region to really see what's going on because some of the places are what some locations are dragging the homicide clearance rates down Mm -hmm. and some places remain very high so for example quebec and british columbia have the lowest clearance rates um and um the prairies have relatively high clearance rates and the maritimes um they have so few homicides usually that um uh uh, their clearance rates remain quite high. Huh. That's really yeah. interesting because it, it just on the face of it, you would think that the Maritimes, you know, for a long time they've had, well, it's better now. It's way better now. But for a long time, they had very, very high rates of unemployment. They had, they have like some of the highest sort of substance abuse problems in all of Canada. And yet they, not so much with the murders. That's, <laughs> that's, like, that's interesting. Well, I haven't really heard about the substance abuse. Oh yeah, they, they, I mean, they we, have uh, very high rates of alcoholism and like. Oh uh, right, big, but big I, I guess I'm more thinking of like the harder um, illegal street drugs, yeah. which you tend to see more in urban areas. But um, yeah, well, they have they don't have a lot of homicides. Um, in some cases, say like PEI will go years without one or several years, and then they sometimes have a hundred percent clearance rate. So. In the unemployment argument, so I tested that, the unemployment rates impact on the homicide rate, and it doesn't seem to have at least a direct relationship with the homicide rate. So maybe it's a, a point one has to reach, and I just, you know, where the, the homicide rate has to, I'm sorry, the, the unemployment rate has to go so high that it has an impact, but I haven't seen it in, in the data. But it is a difficult um uh, those events, those, you know, mass um, economic issue events where the um, unemployment rate would, would skyrocket in a really short period of time, it's hard to test against the um, against the homicide rates, as opposed to, say, change over time, which you can easily test. So one event, um, I know in, in Alberta, people have made the argument that, you know, the crime rate is on the increase because of the fact that we've had um, some economic issues over the last few years. Yeah. So it depends. But I, there's no real support for the um, unemployment rate as a driving factor for homicide. It could be that it interacts with something else. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that I I find one of the biggest misperceptions that I encounter. I mean, I teach this class, Good and Evil, and we we go over a lot of the stuff. And that is like one of the areas where my students consistently have the biggest mismatch between their expectations and what the reality is. Because they all, um, you know, regardless of their political orientation, they all seem to believe that there's a direct relationship between... Um, poverty and crime and in fact um, it's it doesn't seem like there necessarily is well poverty and unemployment are not you know they're measuring two different things and I would imagine that there is a relationship if you were to take out things like uh, not necessarily examine homicide right there are uh, there are probably increases in in petty crime um, in times where you have a large proportion of the population that's in poverty. That would absolutely I can see how people would expect that, um, but it doesn't seem to have the direct effect on the violent crime, at least not at, uh, when just measuring um, homicide rates. Yeah, well, I, and it's also interesting to see that how that sort of intersects with culture because uh, one of the things that I've, I've talked with a lot of friends about is the, the whole issue of is there like a culture of poverty and culture of violence and and to what extent is it kind of changed by economic issues in the neighborhood I grew up in um, in sort of in the southwest of Montreal there was when I was when I was a kid it was a period of really intense recession and at one point there was like one third of the population the adult population of my neighborhood was unemployed and just wow. unbelievably high right and mm-hmm. so you had uh, high rates, higher rates of like domestic violence and higher rates of like uh, gang activity and violence and stuff like that. And you had some people that were getting completely into a sort of culture of poverty, culture of violence. Uh, but then when the economy picked up and things started doing well, a lot of those people just 
switched gears just like that and went into like being respectable citizens with jobs who are like completely normal. And there's some people that were kind of stuck in that, you know, what you might call like a, like a culture of crime and poverty and they mm. just couldn't get out of it. It'd become like a total part of their life. Right. Mm-hmm. So I could see both, right. I could see how there is this thing that, that exists, right. But it's yeah. much more elastic than than extremists well, on think, either side allow for yeah and you're also talking about a neighborhood there where you might be it might seem more obvious right if you're looking at the huge picture rather than uh, a case study situation mm-hmm. then um you probably are going to see different things so i i absolutely think that um one's individual experience with employment would have an impact on their criminal propensity, say, but I wouldn't necessarily say that that's going to play out on the macro scale when it comes to something like homicide. So yeah. you might see increases. I mean, the increases in domestic violence have, have been noted as well, right? But uh, uh, in terms of overall measures, but the, the driving factor, I mean, that we haven't uh, that I haven't we haven't talked about is actually that young male demographic, right? That's the, that seems to be the driving part of the, of changes in homicide rates in yeah, this you, country. Can you and, say that for our listeners? Cause a lot of people just hate to hear this, but it's true. I mean, like, Oh, the, yeah, the dri- driving factor. So, I mean, I, I don't really like it either because it's not something that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, it, what can you do? Right. So when you have a large proportion of your population that is male between the ages of 15 and 30, say, or it depends, depends on 18 and 29 it depends on how you measure it but it still has the same sort of um uh trend uh the larger that group is the higher your crime rate will be and that is the group that is the most likely to kill um someone and also the group that's most likely to be victim of homicide um, males age uh 18 to 30 let's say uh and that so so and i is mean this we, because of testosterone or because of toxic masculinity well, or, or what is i will t- i will tell you what has been written but i um uh i make a lot more jokes about it than i do about any uh anything else because it's not it's again demographics are not something that we can control we can predict them quite well but we can't control them so um unless you're willing to incarcerate a huge chunk of the population for no reason whatsoever, other than their potential, uh, then um, uh, there's nothing that's going to change this. But I guess being prepared, but the reason that it is argued is that this portion of the population lacks impulse control. And um, this entire segment is it's sometimes argued that they are pathological. Um, so there's an inherent pathological characteristic to that segment of society. Uh, you know, it's difficult because when you say these things in a classroom, say, um, you know, you, you're speaking to that population, you're speaking to that demographic, and most of the people sitting in your classroom are not participating in these activities, but it is overrepresented in that group. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember, like, I, I've sat around with guys that I grew up with, and, like, we just would sort of laugh about stuff that we would do like when we were at that age it was just absolutely insane like yeah totally totally like you think about it now and you're like just i mean to give just one example off the top of my head that springs to mind i was hanging out with a bunch of guys a few months ago and somebody brought up this instance that i completely forgot about which is where these two guys that i i know i did not participate in this but you know but they would they got like really into martial arts and they got like really really tough and like really buff and they were and they just wanted so desperately to like get into fights and prove themselves that they would actually do things like go and walk hand in hand oh, through God. angry Old park or mount royal park pretending to be a gay couple just so guys would jump them and they could beat the living shit out of them wow and they would like and they would get jumped by like groups of like five, six guys and beat the shit out of every single one of them. And they were just doing this like for fun. Right. Like that is insane. Like you can totally see why <laughs> armies just like choose, you know, young men to go fight wars because they're so they're so ready to do it. I mean, I, I remember just desperately wanting to go fight a war when I was like 17 years old, which is really? insane. It's yeah. It's totally insane. But I did. I wanted to like go and 
you know, do something. I mean, there's just this like, yeah, this kind of insanity. So it makes sense well, to me, right? They're consistently, I mean, across time and space and long history, short history, they're consistently the group that's the most vulnerable, right? And in many ways, they're, they are um, influential, it, it, uh, like they can be easily influenced, they can, um, uh, you know, they, they're often lost, they often are looking for something to prove something. And, and lo- most of this is, is chalked up to, although I don't know if correctly, to um, um, this, you know, this pathology, or this lack of impulse control, or, um, yeah, so all of those things, you know, your friends aren't your friends at the time, or these guys at the time aren't going out and committing murder, but you can see how that might not be uh, too far from the decision making that's going on, well, or I lack mean, thereof. I, you know, right? it, a couple of them came close, and one of them did succeed. Actually, he got into oh, okay. he got into well, like a, a fight in Didgeridoo Metro, and he like he actually killed the guy, and he wow. went to, he went to jail for a long time. But it was completely like a like a testosterone thing. Like it was just this crazy, you know, desire to. Sort of, to competitiveness and violent kind of competitiveness which which kicks in right but yeah but i mean it seems to me like in within um academia at least you're it's totally okay although people don't like to hear it you can talk about how there are like men commit the vast majority of of violent crimes and the vast majority of sort of uh, sexual assault you can say that and that's okay but if you talk about how there's particular subcultures that are committing way more violence than others, that seems to be kind of a taboo topic. I mean, how do you, as a criminologist who studies this stuff, how do you talk about that stuff in a way that doesn't sort of get people mad at you? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, yes, yeah, so you definitely have to be careful about certain things. Um uh, we, you know, in Canada, we don't collect um, data. Our data are limited. And one of the things that we tend to avoid asking is um, uh, who you are, right? Like, uh, what do you identify with? What's your religion? What's your ethnic background? What's, you know, uh, we, we don't. So, so when we do analysis, say, on offenders of violent crime, we often don't know that information. Uh, and so we, to speculate would be, you know, inappropriate, unless you actually can um, um, say that this is the case. Now, on the other hand, when you have uh, examples of um, a particular group, say, there's usually um, a socioeconomic uh, factor involved in it, which, um, you know, I tend to demonstrate a lot in my stats class. It's like, okay, here we think that the relationship between, say, race and uh, um Uh, economic outcomes is somehow built into um, uh, or historically we've thought it was a biological determinism sort of thing and here I can demonstrate with these numbers that that's just not the case in fact what we're really talking about is class right Um, but if you look at segments of of, um, young males um, the more isolated or lost Right. The, the less um, say back to something simple like idle hands or something like that. But um, you're going to see that more often in Canada in rural areas. Right. Mm-hmm. Individuals who, um, you know, looking for that place, you know, it, within that time frame where uh, brain development is uh, not complete and they and they don't feel like they necessarily know what they're doing or know where they're going. So this might be a common experience for boys and young men. Uh, but it has a more detrimental effect on certain segments where maybe access to certain things is limited. I mean, this is why this is the group that um, participates in gangs, right? This is mm-hmm. the group that goes overseas and, and joins a terrorist organization. I mean, not in large numbers, but still, it's not like you expect other people to do it or yeah. other segments of society. Um, there are there certain groups that are overrepresented. I would guess probably uh, we don't like I said we don't really have that kind of measure here. They've definitely demonstrated it in the U.S. Um, and I'm and my understanding of it is it's primarily um, um, about lack of access, right? <clears throat> that combined with that demographic feature. So I don't think the feature that we're talking about with that segment is somehow. Um, more or exists more in certain segments 
based on, um, say, race or ethnicity or religion. Um, but I think that some segments are more vulnerable. Okay. Well, I mean, they, they say that in the near future, you know, as as soon as like 20, 2030, that we could have as much as, you know, a half of our workforce that are just basically not needed anymore, right? Because of automation and things like that. It's replacing, I mean, this is the, the whole myth, right? You know, Trump is saying like, oh yeah, all those jobs are going to Mexico and China. And, you know, actually yeah. the truth is most of them just like went up in smoke. They've been replaced by automation. So right. um, do you think from what you know about kind of murder and violent crime and things like that, would to go with your idle hands or the, hands <laughs> of the devil kind of thing, like if you had all of these huge populations of like kind of young men that there's just no work for them anymore and they just are, mm -hmm. are let's say paid to stay home or like do you think that would necessarily lead to a big spike in violent crime in the coming years oh i have i don't know i mean i guess it would depend on how you dealt with the situation and and i mean are we talk if we're talking about uh you know, because I, I use that idle hands, I throw it in there, but it's not like that's that that it sits all by itself, right? If you're mm -hmm. financially stable and you have, um, you know, you have a lot of these things interact with each other. So I go back to the young male thing. In Alberta, we had a spike, right? Young mm -hmm. males moved here pretty rapidly um, because there was a lot of work. It didn't seem to have the same impact on the crime rate now because. Um, they were all employed. They all had full-time jobs. Uh, you know, there, there, there are a lot of things that can, um, can offset, uh, these problems. But, uh, in terms of the role of, of, um, automation and the non-existence of employment, I have no idea. I, I wouldn't be able to make that kind of prediction. I, my guess is it would be, it would depend on what we do, um, what people do if they're not working in those jobs. Yeah, because I mean, it just it just seems to me like whenever you hear about somebody going on like a mass shooting or joining, you know, going to Syria to join ISIS or something like that, it's always sort of un it always seems to be unemployed young men of, you know, within that that age demographic you were talking about that are sort of lacking purpose in their lives and sort of not not married not you know don't have kids or if they have kids they're not involved in them uh, and that seems to be the demographic that is most likely to get involved yeah. in all this crazy violence so having way more of them right uh, worries me <laughs> you know, like, uh yes I, I i can see that it's not something i've really thought about it in, in its relationship with the automation but um yeah, that that is the group, and that is the group that but that needs to be concerned about. But I don't even think we're dealing with them properly right now, right? Um, I'm not sure what properly would look like, but uh, there has to be another option other than, uh, you know, uh, downstream. You know, this has already happened. Now we're just going to find some way to punish. Yeah, right? we're going to we're gonna find you know some way to retaliate. Uh, so it's definitely something we should be. Uh, we should be thinking about regardless of the fact that automation might make the problem worse. Yeah. Well, there's a, a guy that I met in grad school when I was at Hopkins and he was, um, he actually had was in grad school on a complete scholarship from the Marines. Like, and he had actually, he had got in trouble in, I think like Nebraska, like rural Nebraska. And in many of those States, I don't know if this is still the case, but in many of those states, you'd get before the judge. And if it was like your first uh, offense, some serious offense or your, whatever, they would give you a choice. Like you can go to like prison for six months or you can enlist in the Marines. And mm -hmm. so a lot of people, he knew a lot of people like in his unit that enlisted as an alternative to going to prison, um, including himself. And he said, uh, he goes, you know, at first I thought this was like horrible, but like, actually it's kind of, it wasn't terrible <laughs> like, because it sort of channels. You have these like young guys that are kind of like aimless and they're getting yeah. involved in all this violent stuff. And so you, you channel all of those aggressive and like energies into, into like building discipline and, you know, all this stuff. And they, 
it it's great. He goes it like the Marines like saved my life. Like, yeah, it was... the di- it's a diversion. Yeah, it. I mean, um, it's a tactic. It's not. I've heard of it being used in Canada too. I don't know, like exactly that. Like you could either go to jail or you do, or you go to go to the military. But um, I know that that has been an option that's been given to people before. Um, but I mean, uh, I think I think that's exactly it. Like you, you know, they the need for something, maybe the need for structure. I, I'm not entirely sure what it is because that would get into some of the psychology of it. But um, um, I've seen many things help individuals who were heading down the wrong path. All of them had to do with doing something meaningful or doing something with a lot of structure. Yeah. Right. But that's on a case by case. Like uh, it, I don't know if that could be something you could do on large scale. Wow. Oh no, and it it does bring up the question of some other sort of ethical issues, right? Yeah, yeah, just a yeah. bit, <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> Why don't you go to war or yeah, right. jail? <laughs> well, uh, on that wonderful cheery note, I think we'll, yeah. we could end there. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about Thanks a uh, lot, John. murder and violence, and we definitely have to talk again because there's like at least two other major topics that i want to i want to talk to you about in the future but uh anyway, thank you so much and have okay. a wonderful day thanks john thanks for having me <laughs> take care <laughs> bye, bye.